According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 11. When I think back over everything the Lord has ever taught us in Life of Christ... And everything that really just jumped out at me as being um, transformational and powerful and earth-shattering. There have been uh, a dozen or more probably. But this one maybe tops the charts. And this is the understanding of God's omniscience, the understanding of God's plan, the understanding of God's um, foreknowledge and purpose, what He permits even though if we were God, maybe we wouldn't permit it, okay? And things that really cut to the core of theological arguments, like Calvinism, Arminianism, um, middle knowledge, a lot of the things that where humanity struggles to reconcile sovereignty and volition, or sovereignty and free will, and we just can't, because we're human, and we're finite. And the reconciliation of sovereignty and, and volition cannot be done on a finite basis has to be done on an infinite basis and god describes that in his word and so uh when we were in this particular passage back in the day um it hit me and it has continued to hit me for months and years afterwards and so i thought what better message to deliver on the final class of life of christ than uh, a reminder of matthew chapter 11 verses 20 through 24 so that's where we're going to be today before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to set aside distractions, ask Him to open our minds to His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for truth. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for Your um, majesty father your glory your greatness all that we can praise you for father as we find words and even invent new words to describe how uh, unbelievably uh, indescribable you are father uh, i thank you for our indescribable gift i thank you for your unapproachable light i thank you for your unfathomable riches and glory in christ jesus and in all of that father i rejoice that by your grace we fathom you we approach you uh, father we um, describe you. And I thank you for this time together today in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 11, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And you think about um, the different miracles Jesus did, and some he did in Galilee, and some he did in Perea, and some he did in Judea, and so forth. It's interesting, Jerusalem was not the location for the majority of his miracles. All right, Jerusalem was the location for his suffering. Jerusalem was the location for his death, for his resurrection. The greatest of the miracles, I guess, that's fair. The greatest of the miracles is the resurrection. Uh, great because of its eternal impact and the significance that it has for us in the, in the Bride of Christ. But the greatest is not the most. And the majority of his miracles were not done in Jerusalem. They were done in Capernaum. And then second to that, they were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida. All right, those were the top three locations for his miracles. 
And uh, so he denounces those cities because they saw the miracles, and yet observing the signs did not drive them to a response. All right, and this is how God's plan is designed. God's plan, he initiates and we respond. He offers, we respond. He makes a grace provision, we accept it or we reject it. And that's God's initiation and our response. And so he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. They did not repent. And important that we draw a distinction between did not and could not because a whole lot of folks would just write this verse off like it's stupid. Okay, well, this verse isn't stupid. And don't write it off. If God said it, there's a reason why it's there. But there are a lot of folks that write it off because it's stupid. They would laugh at this and say, well, that's dumb. Uh, Of course, they didn't repent. They can't repent. No one can repent. See, and that's where they start to get into the weeds and where they start to get into problems because they say, well, no one can repent because their theology tells them that no one can repent. But this verse doesn't say that they can't repent. It says that they didn't repent. And he denounced them because they didn't repent. We have to ask ourselves, well, could they have under other circumstances? Could they have under these circumstances? And does he denounce them because they couldn't or because they didn't, even though they could? That's the point. We reap what we sow. We, uh, if we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. How, do we, how does the law of sowing and reaping relate to our volition, the choices we make in God's sovereignty? That's what this passage teaches us. And I think... Um, we get to resolve some of the great debates of all church history by understanding the truth of this passage right here. So, began to denounce them because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. In other words, they did not change their thinking. Metanoel. They did not change their thinking. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if, if, and this is a huge if, but it's a huge if spoken by the God who cannot lie. The God who knows all things. Would you, Chorazin, would you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Here we have what's called a counterfactual. Okay, if you ever study logic, if you study a debate, or you study um, thought, okay. It is a counterfactual. This is a second-class condition of if. It is if, and it is not true. But it might have been true in another universe. Okay, It might have been true in another um, set of circumstances. Okay, If my mother had not died, today she would have turned 72. All right? That's a counterfactual. And this is normal. We're not making up stuff to try to explain theology. This is normal use of language. Every language in all human history has always had ways to express counterfactuals, to express um, different aspects like this. All right. If, now it didn't happen, it didn't happen, but it could have happened. And if it would have happened, this would have been the result. They would have repented. We have other things. You know, we, when you're driving, right? When you're driving, you're, you're, you're pulling out at an intersection, you're looking left and right, and you're thinking, uh, nope, don't have enough room to pull out there. I'm going to wait for the next one. Because why? Why? Because you're thinking, you're not omniscient, you don't have foreknowledge, 
right? Not God's foreknowledge anyway, but you do have a perspective that says, if I pull out there, that truck's going to hit me. Okay? Now, in our finite capacity, we can do that on a very short on a very short basis, okay? We can't do that over the next 2,000 years, but we can do that in traffic. We can do that for things in motion, things that we can see within our scope. God can do that from the eternal life conference of eternity past. God can look to see if this happens, what choice do they make? If this happens, what choice do they make? Okay? So he looks down the road and he can see all of that ahead of time. This is what omniscience is. This is what foreknowledge is. And it's, we've got to understand that these, because there's bad definitions of foreknowledge out there, this passage destroys every last one of them. All right. So if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now the fact is, those miracles did not take place. Why not? Why didn't they take place? Because God didn't send them. God didn't assign a prophet like Jesus to go to those places and do those miracles. He had prophets in the, in the day and age of Tyre and Sidon. Ezekiel was a prophet during the age of Tyre and Sidon and their greatness and their glory and whatnot. He didn't send Ezekiel into Tyre and Sidon to bring about their repentance and do those miracles. He, they denounced them. They preached about them. Jeremiah preached about them. Isaiah preached about them. And basically uh, pronounced judgment. So how come Ezekiel went to Babylon? Why didn't God send Ezekiel to Tyre? Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Why didn't he send Jonah to Tyre? And do some of those miracles. All right? It wasn't his purpose. Remember, it's his predetermined plan. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God did not fit. His purpose was not for Tyre and Sidon to repent. His purpose was not to send those miracles to Tyre and Sidon or to Sodom and Gomorrah which we also have here as well. In you, Capernaum, this is the pinnacle. So we've got the, the tandem of Chorazin and Bethsaida. That's like, uh, you know, uh, bronze medal, silver medal, okay? Uh, but the gold medal of all miracles is, uh, is um, Capernaum. And the gold medal of all carnality is Sodom. All right? History does not record for us a, a greater wickedness than the Sodomites, even to this day. Okay, not to this day. Up to a generation ago, sodomy meant something. A sodomite meant something. In our generation, the term is no longer appropriate. <laughs> uh, we're no longer permitted to use that term, and if we use the term, then we're subject to hate crimes. Okay? But there's a reason why the scripture uses sodomy, uses Sodom as the pinnacle of all carnality. And if they could have repented, who can't? See, if they could have repented, everybody under the right circumstances can repent. That's the point. And it's, it's a remarkable point, particularly if you hold to the theology that says no one can. Okay? It's, it's a vast gulf fixed between no one can repent and everyone can repent. Okay? I can't think of a wider gulf than that. And this passage tells us how it happens. How it happens without destroying sovereignty. In fact, it magnifies sovereignty. 
Because it's God's sovereignty that sends the miracles to Capernaum but doesn't send the miracles to Sodom. It's God's sovereignty that puts the right ministry and the right effects, gifts, ministries, and effects in the right place at the right time to bring about the results that he desires in his eternal plan. That's the point here. And so, nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Uh, Those unbelievers will have a better judgment than the unbelievers of uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Remember, the lake of fire is not an equal uh, opportunity employer. Just as heaven is not an equal opportunity employer. There are degrees of blessing for all eternity in heaven, and there are degrees of judgment for all eternity in the lake of fire. There are deeper levels, as we saw in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel got a grand tour of the lake of fire, or the uh, hell, actually, not the lake of fire. And in the lowest level of hell, the very bottom of the heap, were the Assyrians. All right? He describes that. I think we've probably topped the Assyrians in recent years. So, more detail on this. Let me show you again. I've been highlighting this. I hope you're making use of it. Going to uh, the home page. Typing in, uh, if I can't find Harmony. If you don't have this bookmarked by now, shame on you. But here's Harmony of the Gospels. All right, it's pretty smart to go ahead and just bookmark that. It's far more important than all those other bookmarks you see there on my toolbar. Um, Let's see. Pull up your Harmony. Make it big enough to read. And then say, you know, I like that verse in Matthew 11. I just don't know, when did Pastor teach that? When did he teach that passage in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24? And is it called the unrepenting cities? I mean, is it called that just because the uh, pericope heading in the New American Standard Bible says the unrepenting cities? No, don't, uh, don't get confused there. Because those pericope headings are unique to the Bible translation you're reading. Right? If you're reading a Holman, then you've got a different pericope heading. An unresponsive generation. If you're reading a New King James, it's rejection by Jesus' generation. So you've got different pericope headings depending on what Bible you're reading. Don't confuse Bible uh, pericope headings with uh, what we have here. Because what we have here are section headings for episodes in the life of Christ. And sometimes they match, sometimes they don't. So if I'm going to look for Matthew chapter 11, there's my Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John columns across the top. And I'm just going to focus on the Matthew column here. I'm going to go down, I'm going to find chapter 11. Now I might have to be careful, because there's chapter 9, there's chapter 12, there's chapter 5, there's chapter 8. All right, there's Matthew chapter 11. 2 through 19 and 20 through 30. Aha, there it is. It's episode 21, and it's called, what's it called? Is it called Unrepentant Cities? It's called Woes Upon the Privileged. Okay? That's what you want to keep in mind when you're browsing the website. And let me just pull up a new tab here. When you're browsing the website and you're going to the Life of Christ uh, page, and you remind yourself here that it's Woes Upon the Privilege is episode 21 in 
the Galilean ministry of Jesus. You see how I did that? Okay. It's not in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it's not in the last Judean and Prean ministry. Do you see those section headings at the top of the table there? All right. Because the numbers restart. You see that the Galilean ministry ends with episode 56, and then the last Judean and Prean ministry begins again with episode 1, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you see how that works? All right. So I'm looking for episode 21, woes upon the privileged in the Galilean ministry. So when um, I go to the church website and I go to the, uh, the Life of Christ series by clicking there, I come over here to the right and I expand this Galilean ministry. And now all in that right-hand column going down are going to be these, uh, these episode headings, Right? And here's where I want to find woes upon the privilege, right there. Think you could do that? Sometimes the, sometimes the lawyers make the TV guys say, don't try this at home, right? I'm just the opposite. I don't have any lawyers anyway. So I say, try this at home, okay? Try this a lot at home. Because there's woes upon the privilege, and what do you have there? You have five audio files to listen to. Number 112, 113, 114, 115, 116. I kind of recommend you listen to them in order, but, you know, have fun. <laughs> uh, it's, it makes more sense if you listen to them in order. We taught this uh, starting on May 24th of uh, 2006. So you are to be forgiven if you've forgotten some of this in the last eight years. Right? Or if you weren't here eight years ago when we first taught this. And as you're listening to the uh, audio files, look what we have down there at the bottom of the page. See that link there? That's too small, isn't it? I've got to make this bigger. There we go. At the bottom of the page, under the uh, audio files, is... The PDF document, the little icon there for the Adobe PDF document. Woes upon the privilege. Again, I, we tried to be virtually identical. It's not 100%, but in probably 95% of all of these Life of Christ episodes, the document name matches the topic. It matches the, the pericope heading or the subject heading for the episode. So uh, we can just select woes upon the privilege right there. And oh, look at that. We have the, the printed notes, the outline that I used when, I, when teaching those six classes, or five classes. All right, woes upon the privilege. Jesus Christ pronounced messages of woe consistent with his prophetic office. Yeah, that's pretty common, right? I mean, it's, it's as common as, uh, as a church-age pastor saying, uh, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, um, an Old Testament prophet would be very common for them to stand up and say, whoa, okay? Because they were often the instrument of the Lord's rebuke upon Israel or upon the Gentile nations. And uh, in the Greek, it's ui. Hebrew, you got hoi and oi. Very common. Gave you some examples there if you want to go look at some woe examples from the Old Testament. A whole bunch of those. Say, why would I want to look at some woe passages? You'd be surprised. All right? If, uh, if God's preaching a woe message, you might be curious as to what 
prompts a woe message and say, that's activity I don't want to be a part of, like sodomy. Okay, Again, language we're not allowed to use today, but the Bible does, so I will. God pronounces woe upon Sodom. But then in the New Testament, he pronounces woe upon Capernaum. And that's the point. When he pronounces woe upon Capernaum and says, not even Sodom is as bad as you, that's the point of what we're dealing with here. He denounced the most accountable cities, and the verb on a deedzo is to revile, to mock, to reproach, to reprimand. And any kind of a mocking, or the noun anedismas, to a reproach, any mocking, any, any reproach, any reprimand that has even a taste of mocking, do you mock somebody that can't help it? Do you mock somebody that has no control over, I mean, I mean, we do because we're carnal, but I'm, I'm talking about biblically now, okay? I'm talking biblically now. And I'm not confessing anything this morning. I'm saying a person who mocks somebody for their race or mocks somebody for their gender or mocks somebody for something that is just out of their control and, and a part of who they are, that's ridiculous. That's, that's carnal. That's wrong. That's reprehensible. Okay? But for somebody who did something stupid, who didn't have to do something stupid, who made a dumb choice, who just, that's, that's mockable. Okay, that is mockable. You say, you're not going to do that again, are you? Of course they're not going to do it again. They wouldn't have done it the first time if they weren't such a bonehead, right? So the point being, again, even the language of a denouncing, the language of anedizo speaks to the fact that they didn't have to do this. They could have repented, is what we're saying. And they're being mocked for not repenting. So he denounces the most accountable cities. And um, you got the, there's nine uses of onedizo in the New Testament. You got a verse list there. Um, in point two, you've got uh, five uses of the noun, onedizmos, uh, reproach. And you've got uh, the, the verse list there Romans, 1 Timothy, Hebrews, and that. All right. The cities were subject to reproach because they did not repent. I highlighted that. Metanoeo, of course, is the verb. Aorist active indicative. Metanoeo, to change one's mind or to repent. Remember, repentance is not an emotion. Repentance isn't regret. It's not feeling bad. Repentance is changing your thinking. Changing your thinking. Choosing to have a different way of thinking about something. All right. Maybe this morning I've sparked a change of thinking with respect to what you mock and what you don't mock. Okay? say, well, I don't mock anything. I would never mock anything. God does. God does. In fact, uh, um, we're commanded to. Take up this mock against the king of Tyre. Take up this mock against the king of Babylon and taunt him how the mighty have fallen. How you have fallen from heaven, Halel ben Shachar. That's a taunt and we're commanded to sing it. Okay? Or millennial believers are commanded to sing it. Now, um, because they did not. Not because they couldn't, because they did not. All right. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and especially Capernaum were subject to the greatest reproach because they had witnessed the greatest testimony. What do we glean out of this? To whom much is given shall much be required. If God's given you more teaching than the next person, you're more accountable than the next person. Don't get prideful. Don't get all puffed up to say, hey, we're the greatest believers in the history of the church age. 
All right. There's never been a local church with a more accurate understanding of Scripture than Austin Bible Church in 2014. <laughs> okay. There's never been a more accurate uh, way of Bible teaching than uh, Bracket Church and categorical doctrinal teaching. Okay. Colonel Theme is practically, uh, you know, second to Jesus Christ himself in his understanding of Scripture. Have you ever heard that? I have. I have the idolatry of, of the colonel. It just breaks the heart in any event. Um, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had the greatest reproach because they had the greatest accountability. Uh, the unrepentant Tyre and Sodom, here's point five, the unrepentant Tyre and Sodom, and Sodom will bear reproach in the day of judgment, but to a lesser degree than the unrepentant Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, they're all unrepentant. So why is unrepentant Sodom going to have it better than unrepentant Capernaum? This is what Jesus is saying here. They are going to have it better. On ectoteron, it's a comparative from anektos, bearable and durable. Now, I don't know how anyone endures hell, but some endure it better and some endure it worse. And I have to accept by faith that God means what he says when he says they will endure it better. Because that's what it says. Uh, it is used five times in the New Testament. All five are in the comparative use of uh, more bearable, more endurable. All right. So when we get to point six, here's where we're really in the meat of this now. The omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware of all realities and unrealities. The omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware of all actualities and potentialities. This is what we've got to identify with. And I like how redundantly I wrote that. The omniscient foreknowledge. Same thing. Okay? God's foreknowledge is part of his knowledge. I mean, it's his knowledge. It's his omni-knowledge. Just like his past knowledge, his present knowledge, his foreknowledge is all wrapped up into the pure simplicity. Remember, God is pure actuality, pure simplicity. Okay, God's knowledge. You can't separate out foreknowledge from past knowledge. It's all God's knowledge. Okay, now, so omniscient foreknowledge. This gets a bad definition by a whole lot of folks who uh, will deny that God knows what the Bible says he knows. And they've written books to tell you that God doesn't know what God said he knows in his book. Okay? Because God knows all the realities. He also knows all the unrealities. He knows, again, he knows that Tyre and Sidon would have repented. Okay? But they didn't. They would have, though, in that universe, in that timeline, in that alternate arrangement. Had other choices been made? Had other, had other decisions gone that way? Okay? Like my uh, alternate universe where um, I would have, if I had not become a pastor, I would have become a homicide investigator. That I would have uh, pursued a criminal justice degree. And I would have become a homicide. My goal was to be a homicide investigator by age 30. All right. 
and had a whole plan starting at age 16 or 17 to get there by age 30. Well, now I can say that, but can I know that? Can I know that? Um, you know, what would my life be like had I not met Sharon? What would my life be like if I had um, not been sent to Fort Hood, Texas? When I tried to get out of my Fort Hood, Texas assignment. I volunteered for a chemical weapons dump in California to get out of my orders to Fort Hood, Texas. And I got rejected by a chemical weapons dump in California. A commanding officer would not take me. Now, it is conceivable, it is possible, that even though you have orders for a different unit, if you find a commander that will take you, then he will actually take you, assign you to his unit, and then he will send the uh, notification to PERSCOM that, uh, to void your, your PCS orders and to reassign you to, to that. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to break my orders for Fort Hood so that I could be assigned to this chemical weapons dump in Susanville, California. In the middle of nowhere, okay? And the um, Lord didn't let that happen. He overruled, right? And I just didn't get swallowed by a whale, but it was pretty much a Jonah experience. Because God said, you need to be in Austin, Texas. God knew what he was doing. Now, with hindsight, I look back, but do you know how humbling it is to be rejected by a chemical weapons dump? <laughs> I mean, these are the choice assignments that, that they, they can't keep their slots filled. People do what I tried to do to get out of the chemical weapons dump. They, they sign into other units or they, they get their order for a chemical weapons dump and so then they volunteer to extend their overseas deployment. They stay in Korea an extra year. They stay in Germany an extra year so that they can void the PCS order to send them to Susanville, California. All right. What would my life have been like had I gone that route? Okay. See, God's got all that in control. We, we can't possibly know. We can guess. We can think maybe this, maybe that. We don't know. The point is, though, God does know. And when he makes this statement about Capernaum, or actually when he makes the statement about Sodom, that actually goes back 2,000 years. And not only knows what would have happened 2,000 years ago, but he knows the entire history in the meantime. He knows the following 2,000 years after that. Notice this. Um, because it says, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, verse 23 there, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So he could guarantee not only a deliverance in the time of Abraham, 2000 BC, but also an ongoing continuous habitation. He has the whole history of Sodom from 2000 BC to 33 AD in that alternate universe where Sodom repents where he sends those Capernaum miracles to Sodom. So why didn't he? Lot was in Sodom. Abraham was within eyesight of Sodom. God could have told either one of those guys to go do those miracles. Or the two angels that went in to destroy Sodom, he could have sent those angels in to do those miracles. Or anybody else. He could have raised up any other prophet to go in and do those miracles. He could have sent Melchizedek in there to do those miracles but he didn't. See, that's God's sovereignty. They didn't repent. That's their volition. Both are absolutely upheld and both are absolutely true. That's what we get out of this passage. So, God knows the reality of what happened. 
what is happening and what will happen. Okay? Past, present, future. What happened, what is happening, what will happen. Absolute knowledge of all of that from Alpha to Omega. Okay? Any time distinction is, is from our perspective. Only finite beings can speak and can even think in terms of past, present, and future. God is timeless. He is beyond space and time, the creator of space and time. And so if we, particularly if we're, if we're trying to envision, if we're trying to think, conceptualize about eternity past, we, have, we, we start to run into trouble because in eternity past, words like when and before and, and things like that, they don't always apply in the timeless dimension of alpha, in the timeless uh, dimension of eternity past. Okay? So... God knew that Nineveh would repent if he sent Jonah. He knew that Nineveh would not repent when he sent Nahum. But he sends both prophets anyway to give both messages. The prophet Jonah goes and they repent. The prophet Nahum goes, they don't repent. So why does he waste his time sending Nahum if he knows they're not going to repent anyway? Okay, see, that's the point. God knows we don't. And he gives his commands based on what he knows and in keeping with his purpose. God also knows the potentialities. Now, here's where certain theologies go off the tracks. Because there's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of churches that say God doesn't know any of those potentialities. God doesn't know any of those what-ifs. Okay? God, only, uh, God also knows the potentialities of what will happen and how those happenings change in response to other circumstances and details of His plan. In other words... He wants A to happen, but A isn't going to happen until B, C, and D happen first. God knows all that. So, if, if Abraham, Lot, or some other servant of the Lord, I mentioned Melchizedek was alive at this time, Shem, maybe Shem was Melchizedek, whatever. If these people, if God had sent any of them in to do those miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum, then he wouldn't have had to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented. If they would have undertaken a prophetic power ministry in Sodom, then the unbelievers of Sodom would have responded with repentance. Now here's where, again, we have to step out of our finite understanding. We have to step out of our humanity. We're not equipped to do this. Right? We, if we were God, wouldn't we want Sodom to repent? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Isn't it bad that fire and brimstone destroyed Sodom? Isn't that a bad thing that all those unbelievers went to hell? Wouldn't it be good if they repented and were in heaven today? Wouldn't that be good? See? But we're too finite. We're too small. We're too small. Sure, maybe uh, how, how, how big was Sodom? We don't know, but if they'd had ten righteous, he would have saved them. Um, thousands of people lived in Sodom? Tens of thousands? A hundred thousand could have been that big. Not in that day and age. Okay? I mean, how big was Rome at its height, right? So, tens of thousands perished. Even a hundred thousand perished. I don't think food and water could have sustained that. But anyway, next time Titus Kennedy is here, let's ask him what his his, uh, population estimate is on Sodom. Tens of thousands died. But 
billions have been warned of the wrath of God because of their destruction. Billions have been warned for thousands of years in the scriptures. Can we, can we, can we wrap our minds around that? How many have been warned about sodomy? <laughs> okay. Up until our generation, of course. Now we celebrate it. But how many have been warned? So if billions have been warned, how many have repented because of the warning? See, it's only, two, it's only humans that say, oh, it's bad that the thousands perished. That the thousands didn't repent. They could have repented. See, they're going to blame God. They're going to blame God. I'm going to blame God because my mom got cancer. Well, wait a minute. Believers get cancer. Unbelievers get cancer. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Why is mom entitled to not get cancer? Why? You know, but what does God do in and through that? What results because of that? Or the sad things we go through? We go through sad things. Well, we learn stuff in sad things. We learn a lot of stuff in sad things that we don't learn in happy things. And God needs to teach us the things that we learn in sad things. Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Why do I think I somehow rate to not go through that? Am I greater as a slave greater than his master? Is a student greater than his teacher? If Jesus learned through what he suffered, why do I get a, a, an excused absence from that? I don't. So, the fact is, Sodom did not repent. And because they did not repent, they were judged. Capernaum did not repent. Because they did not repent, they were judged. Now, could they have repented? Yes. We're told they could have. We're told they could have. Even Sodom could have. Now, so whose fault is it? Was it Sodom's fault for not repenting? Was it God's fault for not arranging the circumstantial conditions that would have resulted in them repenting? Now here we're, we're fault finders, and according to Job 42, we can't be fault finders. But humanity likes to assign fault. Okay? God doesn't assign fault. God assigns consequences for choices. Nevertheless, whose fault is it? Is it Sodom's fault for not repenting? Or is it God's fault for not giving the Capernaum miracles? Because had he given the Capernaum miracles, they would have repented. So is it God's fault? Okay. Now here's the key. It's no one's fault. God doesn't find fault. There is no fault finder in the plan of God. There are choices and there are consequences. God made his choice not to send the Capernaum miracles. Sodom made their choice not to repent. It's all about choices. Say. And human choices don't invalidate God's choices. Because God's not bound by our choices. God makes his choices from the foundation of the world and establishes those conditions. We're accountable for the choices we make in the conditions God chooses for us to face them. So, and we understand that we, it's not an issue of fault it's a consequence for the choices we make under the conditions we find ourselves. Okay? That's huge. That's absolutely huge. Uh, if you're a single person, 
you are not accountable for marital choices. But when you're married, guess what? Now you've got marital testing, marital choices, marital accountability. God doesn't hold you accountable for the conditions you're not in. I've never been tested for pregnancy other than sympathetic pregnancy, you know. I tried to eat all the french fries and ice cream that Sharon did. Just, you know, showing sympathetic cravings. But the point is, I've never been in those conditions. I've never been tested in that way. Okay? I've never lost a spouse. My brother has. My sister has. My, my father has. All right? I've never faced that test. Okay? You have. A lot of folks have. But until you're placed in those conditions, you're not accountable for whether you made right choices or bad choices in that field of testing. That's what we're saying. So on Judgment Day, (laughs) Sodom and Gomorrah can't go to the Lord and say, but, 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 if we'd have been tested in other realms, we would have passed. Okay? The issue is on Judgment Day, you were tested in these realms and you failed. You can't say, oh, but, 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 I would have. Yeah, you would have, but you didn't. Okay? That's the point. And this is how God's sovereignty is magnified and uplifted. Right? This is how God sovereignly determines the conditions we're in. He doesn't have to control the choices we make because He knows the choices we'll make when He controls the circumstances we're in. Think about it. All right. So, the realities of the second class conditional statements. Oh, I skipped over F. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were destroyed as a consequence of their own evil actions. And no question, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, I mean, every last one of them preached against Tyre and Sidon. And none of them went there and performed those miracles. So we understand the realities. They failed to repent under circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in Tyre and Sidon repenting. That's what Jesus is saying here. Chorazin and Bethsaida failed to repent under circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in Tyre and Sidon repenting. Likewise, Capernaum failed to repent under circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in Sodom repenting not only repenting, but abiding for a period of more than 2,000 years. So why is it the same conditions that would have sparked their repentance didn't spark their repentance? See, God's got a handle on that too. Under what conditions would you think back to when you got saved? And what were those conditions? Those were conditions in which you accepted the gospel. But under what other conditions might you have rejected the gospel instead of the conditions you were in when you accepted? Okay, It's not a hypothetical. Because a lot of us have that. Because we had episodes where we rejected the gospel before we finally had the episode where we accepted the gospel. Okay, Maybe not all of us. Maybe, maybe a lot of us just believed the first time we heard it. But maybe you believed the third time you heard it, the fourth time you heard it. Robert Jewell um, heard it a number of times and re- rejected it 
I don't know how many times, but the evangelist who led him to Christ actually led him to Christ on the second occasion that he preached the gospel. And Robert rejected it the first time. Most of us would just walk away and give up. But that evangelist went back a second time and said, you know, I know you didn't want to hear this the other day, but let me tell you about this. He gave him the gospel a second time. Okay? So God knows the conditions in which we will reject it, the conditions in which we will accept it. God knows all of that. So what conditions does he put us in? The ones he wants. That's his sovereignty at work. That's his election. That's his sovereignty. That's his predestination. That's his everything. Magnify it all. But don't deny the choices we make. Because that's also true. All right. Judgment on the wicked will be proportional. No shortage of passages there. Job 34, Psalm 28, Psalm 62, Jeremiah 17. Print these notes off someday. Take a look at these. And realize judgment upon the wicked will be proportional. And then the message of woe followed by messages of praise. Invitations even to uh, come and take. In Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. Here's the praise. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Well, that's ridiculous. Nobody can come. Okay. Well, we're commanded to. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. So these messages of woe are followed by praise and thanksgiving. Messages of come and take. We've got notes on this as well. Praise. Come is uh, the imperative here from uh, Duta, used 12 times in the New Testament. Take, another, er- another imperative, from Iro to raise, to lift up. The fact that we can lift up because Jesus was lifted up. We've got some realities there that are worth studying. This imperative is tied to the imperative to learn. The imperative to learn. Manthano. 25 times you've got Manthano. You see Manthano there? The imperative to learn. What's, what's remarkable, of course, my imperative is to teach. My imperative is to preach. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So there's finally where we get teaching. Instruction. But I'm, I'm commanded to preach the Word. You're commanded to learn. And you may obey or disobey. Okay, it doesn't change what I'm doing. I'm going to obey. I'm going to keep preaching. I love the fact that teach and learn are different verbs. I love the fact that it's not just simply a contrast of active voice, passive voice. It's not the active voice of didasco where I teach. Or didaskalos is a teacher. Didasco is the verb to teach. It's not an active voice. When I teach the active voice, I am actively teaching. Didasco. But it is your verb is also an active verb to learn. It's not a passive voice to be taught. You're not commanded to be taught. You're commanded to learn. You see what I'm saying? Because it's not just simply active voice teach and passive voice be taught. No. 
You are actively learning. You are actively learning. That's huge. Because I think too many Christians have this passive Christianity. A passive thing. Well, if I go to church, then I am going to be edified. I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to be taught. I'm going to be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. I'm going to be... And, and everything is, is just thought of as um, passive voice. I show up and it happens to me. Okay? Just simply, I get a gold star for attendance and I sit down and... <laughs> wait a minute. And then all of a sudden, all of these things just passively, I just... I don't have to do anything. I just have to sit there and... And it just happens. Okay? And maybe they think about it hard enough they say, well, probably it won't happen if I'm out of fellowship, so I should probably should at least confess my sins before we get started. And then just let it happen. Well, I sit here passively doing nothing. No. Listen. That's an active voice. Learn. That's an active voice. Be a disciple. Active voice. Nothing passive about it. Nothing passive about it, okay? No, you will be transformed. You will be renewed. You will be strengthened in the inner man. You will be blessed. You will be encouraged. You will be comforted. A ton of passive things will actually happen to you. Yes, I accept that. But that will happen as a consequence of your active voice learning. Your active voice presenting yourself before him as a workman needing not to be ashamed. Your active voice rightly dividing the word of truth. That's huge. All right. So, come, take, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. What it, see, we think take my yoke upon you is suck it up when bad stuff happens. That's not what it is. It's not just grit your teeth and tough it out when bad stuff happens in your life. No. It's a learning process. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Being fellow yoked to Jesus Christ is a learning process. It is the peripatetic learning ministry when you are walking the Christian walk, yoked together with Jesus Christ. Remember, it's His yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Right? A yoke is like, think of, think of, you know, a yoke is like handcuffs for oxen. Okay? I mean, there's, there's two cuffs in the handcuffs, right? There's two hoops in the fellow yoke when you are yoked together with another animal. And there, there is such a thing as a single yoke. Yes, I get that. But this is a joint yoke, a tandem yoke with Jesus Christ. We are fellow workers with him. We are fellow laborers with him. Plus, he says it's his yoke. And learn from me. Remarkable, Isagogus on this, remarkable how they take a younger animal and train him with an older animal. It's wonderful how they train, and I don't remember now, I'm not a farmer, but how they train and they match up the, the older ox with the younger ox, right? Old dog, young dog. Can't teach a old dog new tricks because he's teaching the young dog the new tricks. I don't know. All right. <clears throat> Get off that. But the point is, when we are yoked with him, we are learning from him. 
So learning is a tandem operation with Jesus Christ. We are yoked to Him, which means we're walking, we're pulling a load, we're under a burden. That's normal. That's how you learn. Well, I like the learning, I just don't like the burden. Well, then you've got a different model than the Bible's model for how we learn as disciples of Jesus Christ. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the, the, the sadness is if you cast that yoke off, the one you're volunteering for is a whole lot worse. When you don't walk with the Lord, the consequences, the price you pay for that is, is unthinkable. There is a price to pay for violating the plan of God. And if you think his is hard, no, his is easy. His burden is light compared to compared to what's coming. All right. So come, take, those are all volitional, they're all imperatives left to us to volitionally comply with or not. The Lord's response to believers volitionally coming is to provide rest. It is to provide rest. And I think the reason why the book of Hebrews says there's a danger of us not entering into rest is because the reality is the imperative to be yoked to Christ, the imperative to grow, the imperative to be a disciple. Sadly, many believers reject that imperative. And they never reach the rest that we're designed for in the church age. Finally, then, God's sovereign actions of hiding and revealing do not alter man's accountability to come and take. God's sovereign actions of hiding and revealing do not alter man's accountability to come and take. Again, as we look at these verses here in Matthew, when he says it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and the day of judgment than for you. But now notice, when he praises God the Father, what does he say? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, that's on the one hand, and you have revealed them, on the other hand. And there's a target audience for the hiding, and there's a target audience for the, the uh, revealing. You've got the wise and intelligent on the one hand, you've got the infants on the other hand. In other words, when God sovereignly chooses to open their eyes to something, that's his business. And when he sovereignly chooses to keep them ignorant of stuff, that's his business. Although, I don't think it's completely arbitrary, as some branches of theology would tell you, that it's just arbitrary. He hardens who he hardens, he softens who he softens, and who are you, old pot? Okay? Notice, the wise and intelligent that is, those that are approaching things on human terms from the flesh versus those that simply trust by faith as a child. And it's remarkable when you approach things on faith, you see a lot more. God opens those eyes. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But someone that's, uh, you know, these smarty pants know-it-alls that think they've proven how the universe came into existence that mock and reject how the creator of the universe told us how he brought the universe into existence. Well, things are hidden from them, aren't they? For yes, Father, it was well-pleasing in your sight. The good pleasure of God. That's what sovereignty is all about. Not just, I'm doing what I want to do and deal with it. He does what pleases him. His eternal purpose is what pleases him for the glory of Jesus Christ. All right. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. 
No one gets paterological without the Son bringing us to the Father. All right. The last thing on this was uh, some bonus principles on the second class conditional statements. Bonus principles, I think, that spell out the what-ifs. The fact that we don't know all the what-ifs. We, we, when we say, if that would have been, then I would have done, we can say that, but we can't know a certainty. God can and God does. So, accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. Galatians 6-7, you reap what you sow, God will not be mocked. Accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. And it is just because of the, 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 they are the consequences for the decisions we made under those conditions. Okay? God's omniscient awareness of what potential decisions would have been under different potential circumstances does not alter the just consequences of what the actual decisions are under the actual circumstantial decisions faced. Read that 50 times, memorize it, and live it. You can't just weasel out and say, well, I would have made a different choice under a different circumstance. Okay? That's like Adam saying, it's the woman you gave me. I would have made a different choice if you'd have given me a better woman. Okay? All right. Now, God's omniscient awareness. He knows what every choice would be under every condition. And he gave you those conditions. That's his business. That's his sovereignty. Now you submit to those conditions he put you under and make your choices and reap what you sow. Reap what you sow. Now, for every volitional decision ever made, God's omniscience and God's omnipotence could have crafted circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in a different choice. You know, God could have put me in, or God could have put me in other circumstances where I wouldn't have asked Sharon to marry me. Okay? But he didn't. He could have put her in other conditions where she would have said no. But he didn't. And that's the point. Is there ever a choice we ever make where had God wanted to, He couldn't have put us in some other circumstances where we would have made the other choice? Yeah. There's not any choice we would have ever made in our lives or ever could make in our lives that had God wanted to, He could have changed the outcome of the choice we made by simply altering the conditions we're in. I mean, if He could put conditions to have Sodom repent, He can do anything. He can put us under conditions in which we make whatever choice He wants us to make doesn't force us to make the choice, but he still guarantees the results that are compatible with his plan. So, the sovereign will of God in crafting one set of conditions and not crafting any other absolutely proves his sovereignty is not limited by any volitional creatures or actions. He is not bound by the choices we make. His hands aren't tied, as the Arminians would tell you. See, they're wrong about that. They're wrong. God does not subject his sovereignty to our free will. Never. But neither does he enslave our free will to his sovereignty. As the Calvinists would tell you. Never. See, both groups take an extreme to prove their point, and they're both wrong. 
All right. Decisional consequences are not administered for circumstantial conditions that are not faced. Second Corinthians 8.12 says, look, you're not accountable if you don't have it. You're accountable for what you have. If the desire is present within you, then it's rewardable. So these principles affirm the sovereignty of God. These principles affirm the free will of man. All right. Well, there is one quick summary for what we took. Uh, five hours? Six hours? How many hours did we take to do this? We did uh, several hours to do this. Anyway, so that's one quick summary hour. If you want more on that, go listen to all five or all six, however many it was. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. We've got a break now, Father, a few weeks without a class coming up, but you're in charge of that too. Provide uh, safe travels, provide uh, fruitful ministry, provide uh, not only for for me and my trip, but for all these folks here and, and how you're going to use them on, on this time. So, Father, you're going to glorify your son during our time away. And, and then when uh, you choose to resume this Wednesday morning class, Father, when you choose to bring these students into a new book of study, Father, um, we're just looking forward to see the grace provision you have for us in the book of Proverbs. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.